0: Welcome back, everyone. As you know, this is Marilee at Super Soul Solutions, and this show is Animal Communication Part 3, a Thanksgiving special of heartwarming human with animal communication stories. So I want you all to get really comfortable in your fuzzy robes, kick off your shoes, Grab a blanket in front of the fire or a hot chocolate or tea to sip with a friend, family, or pet. To enjoy these next 55 minutes, I want you to be totally relaxed. And if you have a pet, know that your pet understands what I will be talking about and sharing and will enjoy listening next to you as well. So I would like to start with a quote by Chief Seattle. If all the beasts were gone, men would die from a great loneliness of spirit. For whatever happens to the beasts also happens to the man. All things are connected. Whatever befalls the earth befalls the sons and daughters of the earth. So, as you learned from part one and two, we, the earth, all nature, and its creatures are connected through the quantum field of oneness. Remember that telepathic resonance is done through feeling, sensing, imaging, knowing, hearing, with an attitude of childla- a childlike sense of open spaciousness and wonder. When world-famous animal communicator, Samantha Curry, which I talked about in the previous shows, was to ask on television news, what are the tools you use for animal communication? She responded in one sentence. Animal communicators are people's last hope. We are translators. So the tools are re-engage the way you were as a child. It is natural and inborn skills that everyone has, and visualize to size daydream. Just start by pretending and imagine. So communication with everything is divinely motivated simplicity and naturalness at its best. Now, from here on out, I'm just going to be telling you some of my favorite stories that turned out very successfully of humans learning and really dedicating themselves to communicating and understanding uh, all different kinds of pets. So for you elephant lovers out there, this one was called Elephants Pay Respect. Lawrence Anthony, a legend in South Africa and author of three books, including the bestseller, The Elephant Whisperer, bravely rescued wildlife and rehabilitated elephants all over the globe from human atrocities, including the courageous rescue of Baghdad zoo animals during the U.S. invasion in 2003. On March 7, 2012, Lawrence Anthony died. Two days after his passing, wild elephants showed up at his home, led by two large matriarchs. Separate wild elephant herds arrived in droves to say goodbye to their beloved man friend. A total of 31 elephants had patiently walked over 12 miles to get to a South African house. Witnessing the spectacle, humans were in awe, not only because of the supreme intelligence and precise timing that these elephants sensed, about Lawrence's passing that occurred, remember, many miles away from them at that time, but also because of the profound memory and emotion his beloved animals demonstrated in such a wise, organized way, walking slowly for days, making their way in a solemn one-by-one queue from their habitat to his house. A man's heart stops and hundreds of elephants' hearts are grieving. This man's loving heart, healing, and protection for these elephants, and now they come to pay loving homage to their friend. Lawrence's wife, Francois, was especially touched knowing that the elephants had not been to their house prior to that day for well over three years. Yet, in their understanding of oneness They know their dear friend had crossed over and knew where they were going and would not stop until they got there. The elephants obviously wanted to pay their deep respects, honoring their friend who saved their lives. They did this not only by traveling, as I said, the long distance, but they stayed when they arrived for two full days and nights without eating anything and having many of their heads bowed. The third morning they left quietly and respectfully, making their long journey back home. Now elephant expert adds to this, his name's O'Connell says, to communicate, elephants will normally hold their big ears, big ears out like a parabola scan back and forth. But to detect distant noise and vocalizations, they freeze still and lean forward and put weight on their front legs. Sometimes they'd even lift up a front foot. All of them would do this at the same time. It was too coordinated to be a coincidence. On a, much, on a most fundamental level, the research to me is showing elephants have a whole unique modality for communicating over distance that humans haven't even thought about yet. And for those of you who have been listening and learning about animal communication in the previous two shows, you will understand how they communicate. We've discussed that through the quantum field called telepathy, and they also pick up electromagnetic energy through their feet. And how I know that is the elephants told me that. So the next story is for you bird lovers, and it's called An Eagle Kiss, and this is by Jeff Goodry. So uh, some of you at the top of my pre-announcement page on the radio show, or if you're on my email list and receive my shout-out, you will see the picture of Jeff with his gorgeous eagle, with the eagle's head bowed under Jeff's chin as they're communing together. So here's Jeff's short story. Freedom and Eagle and I have been together 11 years this summer. She came in as a baby in 1998 with two broken wings. Her left wing doesn't open all the way, even after surgery, because it was broken in four places. She's my baby. When freedom came in, she could not stand and was emaciated and covered in life. We made the decision to give her a chance for life, and from then on, I was always around her. We had to tube feed her for weeks. We had her in a huge dog carrier with the top off, and it was loaded up with shredded newspaper for her to lay in. I used to sit and talk to her, urging her to live, to fight, and she would lay there looking directly at me with those big brown eyes. I knew she was listening, and I knew she understood. I just sensed it. This went on for four to six weeks, and by then she still couldn't stand. It got to the point where the decision was made to euthanize her if she couldn't stand in a week. You know, you don't want to cross that line between torture and rehab, and it was looking like death was winning. She was going to be put down that Friday, and I was supposed to come in on that Thursday afternoon. I didn't want to go to the pet care center that Thursday because I couldn't bear the thought of her being euthanized, but I went anyway. When I walked in, everyone was grinning from ear to ear. I went immediately back to her cage, and there she was, standing on her own, a big, beautiful, proud eagle. She was ready to live. I was in tears by then. It was a very good day. We knew she could never fly, so the director asked me to glove train her. I got her used to the glove and then to Jets' and we started doing education programs together for schools in western Washington. We wound up in the newspapers, radio, and some TV. Miracle Pets even did a show about us. In the spring of 2000, I was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I had stage three, which is not good. One major organ plus everywhere else. So I wound up being eight months, taking eight months of chemo. I lost the hair, of course, the whole bit, and missed a lot of work. When I felt good enough, I would go take Freedom out for walks. Freedom would also come to me in my dreams and help me fight the cancer. This happened time and time again, so I could no longer deny it. It was extraordinary. Fast forward to November 2000, the day after Thanksgiving. I went in for my last cancer checkup. I was told if the cancer was not all gone after eight rounds of chemo, that my last option was only a stem cell transplant. Anyway. They did the test, and I had to come back Monday for the results. A long wait those days were. I went in on Monday, and I was told that all the cancer was gone. So the first thing I did was get up and take my freedom out for a walk. It was misty and cold. I went to her and dressed her up, and we went out front to the top of the hill. I hadn't said a word to freedom, but somehow... She knew everything. Stop me. This touches me so much, you might hear me crying as I share some of these stories. She looked at me and wrapped both her wings around me as tight as her strength would allow. I could feel them pressing in on my back. I was literally engulfed in eagle wings like an angel. She touched my nose with her beak and stared into my eyes, and we shared eternity there like that. For I didn't know how long. It was magical. We have always been soulmates, ever since the beginning. I have had people who were sick, as sick as me, come up to us when we were out, and freedom has some kind of magical healing energetic hold on them. I once had a guy who had terminal cancer come up to us and I let him hold her. His knees just buckled under him and he swore he could feel her power coursing through his body. She was sending him healing energy. I have so many stories like that with her. She was indeed a healer for me and many others. I will never, ever forget the honor I have of being so close to such a magnificent spirit is freedom. Ah, so beautiful. So many of you may have heard of Dr. Temple Grandin, well-known high-functioning autistic teacher, said this about her success with communicating with animals and cows, and perhaps this will help everyone, quote. Because we are human, we think of language as words, abstractions, symbols, and squiggly lines that form linear thoughts. Some people believe that language is the only way to communicate. This is just not true. We have to get away from written language. I am a visual thinker, and so are animals, Do many people, especially those with autism. Someone may say to me, My dog is crazy and want me to suggest what to do about it. Well, for me, that's too abstract, just not enough information for me. I question them until I can make a video in my head. I need to know what kind of dog, how big it is, and what it is doing. Then I can form the video and draw on the visual database I carry in my mind, much like an internet search engine would. I first started working with cattle and could immediately see what the cattle were seeing. For instance, they may see a paper cup on the ground, be afraid of it, and balk at it. Most people don't even notice these things or dismiss them as being unimportant. But then they have missed totally the way animals think. End quote. When Dr. Grandin was asked why so many kids with autism love animals and do so well around them, she replied, because they understand the animal. They live in a world of sensory input. Animals have a lot of postural signs as well that most people don't ever pick up on. So very interesting and very interesting how uh, many Children and beings are labeled with autism and actually in many ways how advanced they are. So the next story I want to share is a personal one. And there's a picture of me with a dolphin in the pre-announcement page and also on the shout-out so you can see me. This was probably a good 20 years ago in my first experience with dolphins. This one's a little bit X-rated, I want to warn you. (laughs) So I was... uh, I was driving myself across the entire United States and having an adventure for two months. And I was camping by myself out in different campgrounds. Sometimes I was the only one in the entire campground, which was a little freaky. But uh, as I was finally got to Florida and was heading down to Key Largo, I had my window down. And I, when I got to the Keys, um, I heard this like this. And I went, oh my gosh, that's a dolphin. Where's the dolphin? So I pulled over and right where I pulled over was a place called Dolphins Plus. And they said, come swim with dolphins. So I pulled in and uh, I went, oh my gosh, that's going to be so much fun. And I walked in and Lloyd, the owner and his wife had rescued these dolphins over, you know, the last 15 years, mistreated ones. And they had a big section of the ocean um, caged off in two separate cages and all of that. Uh, to keep the sharks away so I said can I join the next swim because I think they do like four a day and he he uh, said, oh, you know, because usually when you're single and can, uh, you know, you can get in anywhere. It's just when you have to get two seats. He said, no, we are booked way ahead of time. And I said, well, I know I'm here and I'm supposed to swim with these dolphins. And so I will camp right in the camping ground next door. And here's my phone number. If you get a cancellation, please call me. So I'm heading out over there and the phone rings and he says, believe it or not, someone just canceled. So get your suit on and come back. So I came back. Now there's about eight of us, and these dolphins, of which there was a total closest to us in two different areas, two in one uh, area and two in, and three in another, were, of course, incredibly brilliant. That was obvious. I mean, it is just so obvious how smart dolphins are. Uh, and so I knew that what they were doing is they knew the game. They knew that we were going to hop in, and then, the, and then it's up to them whether or not they want to have contact with us. And so um, I knew they were checking us all out. So I just kind of mentally, lovingly said to them, I so appreciate that you have sacrificed your lives to educate people about the brilliance of you. And I'd never known anything about dolphins. I never swam with them. And I said, thank you for humbling yourselves to be with us. And so he filled us in on all the things that could get us into trouble. He said if the dolphins are are snapping their mouths open and closed, it means they're angry. Don't touch them. They're tired of people. If they grab your hand playfully, don't pull back because they have 90 sharp teeth. Um, They rarely but occasionally will be very affectionate with people. They tend to go to children first. Uh, If you're pregnant, you need to raise your hand because you need to be in a separate area because you'll get all their attention. So they fill us in on all this stuff. So we put on our fans. We're in a swimsuit. We're in about 18 feet of ocean water. And I jump in. And being a very playful sort and a pretty good swimmer, uh, we had rules that we had to keep our hands by our side. And so I started doing a dolphin kick, and I went underwater. And I started uh, making dolphin sounds like, (laughs) well, let me tell you, God only knows what I said. I think it was something like, hey, handsome, come here. (laughs) Because the first thing that happened to me is as I'm coming up out of, oh, by the way, I need to say this. They said if one person has contact, do not swarm that person uh, because the dolphin will leave let them, you know, stay within, like, away 15 feet from them. So what happened is I surfaced, and this dolphin, male dolphin, immediately grabbed my mask in his mouth. So I'm basically looking down a throat with 90 teeth. Now, I screamed. I went, ah! Uh, Probably levitated across the water, backed up, got my breath, and I hear this, like this and I turn around and he's laughing and I'm like oh my god so I'm like very funny you know I said why'd you do that and he said because your only fear that we could read in your in your uh fields was gr- great white and sharks. and so when he grabbed me he wanted to teach me that uh it was his way of being playfully working me through my fear and I said okay thank you uh so much so I I grabbed my mask back from him, put it on, and, you know, you have like about a half hour with him. And um, basically we started swimming together. And then uh, what's really interesting is I was looking underwater, and there was a female next to me, and there were two males, and they were circling me. And the one male, uh, basically, I'll just be straight, his penis comes out, it's pretty large and it's slightly hooked. And he came in. They know exactly how to match your energy. I'm I'm strong and I'm a swimmer, so they match that. With a child, they would be really gentle. But he came in and the penis hooked behind my knees because I guess that is where the opening um, of a female dolphin would be, up from the fins. And I go spinning around. And I'm laughing and he's laughing. And this goes on for, like, Fifteen minutes, and Lloyd on the side is going, "Are you okay? Are you okay?" And I'm like, "Oh yeah, boy!" And there was a woman there from the south. She goes, last, the most disgusting thing I've ever seen." <laughs> but you know, it was fun. It was like, whoa! I mean, they um, they know you have to breathe every you know twenty seconds or so, so they're not holding you down, but. These guys were bottlenose dolphins. They were huge, and they were powerful. And so I considered that an, an incredible, uh, you know, compliment. So basically, I, got, I was getting tired. So I sent him a message. And remember, I had done animal whispering a lot. I just go on total faith and just go for it because so, I consider most animals smarter than people. So, so I basically sent him a message, and I said, can we stop? Can we stop? And he went, ah! And I have pictures of this because I got it on video. And um, he stopped straight up, so his tail down, face up. We were six inches from each other. He looked at me directly in the eyes. And um, my arms were around him. You have to be really careful. You have to take off all jewelry because their skin is so soft. You can scar it. You never want to touch over their blowhole or eye and my arms around him, and I said, I love you, but don't you know anything about proper foreplay? This is the message I was sending to him. He looked at me quizzically, and, I mean, they're really intelligent. And I go, can I have some presents first or something? You know, that's just my mischievous humor. So then he just disappears, and I'm like, oh, boy, I guess I blew it or whatever. He proceeds to come back with a pebble that he found at the bottom of the thing, and dropped it in my hand. And, and then he goes back again and I'm realizing, I hadn't realized at first that he is bringing me presents. So I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, thank you so much. And the next time it was a piece of seaweed and the next time it was an old bottle can. <laughs> and so I said, okay, thank you so much. That's plenty of presents. And then he, as soon as I said that, he went back to playing with my knees and doing his thing. So um, we had a great time. And that was my first experience, right? So. I'm getting out Lloyd's going wow he really liked you and I said well you know I said I think I speak dolphinese I probably said hey big boy or something and he laughed and he said yeah they can be very very affectionate and what I realized also I happen to know this is 85 percent of dolphins are human souls okay so that's another subject for another time so um, and we are biocompatible our genetics are very very close and their brain is almost bigger than ours. It's not bigger, so um, it was like whoa. So I told him immediately. I said I have to do this three days. So as I was getting out, the, he was calling me. He was going I do, I do. like this, and so I turned around and sent a message that I'll be back. I'll be back. Thank you so much. So I'm getting out of the pool, and I tell Lloyd I want to do this two more days, three times. And he goes, well, we are booked, but he said, since you had so much fun, why don't you come? Anyway, we'll get you in. So that night I had a dream of being a mermaid living in, um, there are mermaid species on this planet, huge amount live in the Mariana Trench. So uh, there are domed underwater cities on this planet. And I had a dream of having a parallel or past life as that. And I had a dream of the dolphins were friends and whales and that I would hold the dolphin's fin and I wouldn't even have to kick and we'd go underwater and we'd come up like this beautiful dance. So the next day I show up, now the advantage I had was that it was my second time and everybody else's first time. So I, uh, I decided to go not to hurt uh, Fonzie's feelings, but I decided to go uh, to the, the area next door just for uh, a, uh, you know, difference. So when it was time for us to go in, I said, Lloyd, can I go to this one? He goes, sure. So I jumped in, and, of course, I'm much more comfortable now because I'm like – and the next thing I know is Little Bit, who is the male there, he starts coming to me and frolicking with me, and uh, and I mean frolicking sensually. And I, I yelled at Lloyd, word must get around the neighborhood. I'm <laughs> like, Wow. And, um, you know, there was a little boy, and he got a lot of attention, and there's another woman that got attention. So basically, I stopped a little bit, and I said, okay, thank you so much for your affection. I love you, too. And I sent him the image of the dream I had of me holding on to his fin and him and I doing this dance, and he immediately picked it up, because remember, there are images, immediately picked it up. I held on to his fin, and they were they were able to give us rides if, we, if they wanted to, by the way. And held on to his fin, but it was exactly like my dream. He went under and we went up together. I didn't have to, I'm pretty good sized. I didn't have to uh, flutter kick at all. And it was beautiful. It was like one dance being part of one being. And we came up to the surface after about five minutes of this. And we were going. he was going back down again. And there was this, like, jellyfish. And it's one of the jellyfishes that are poisonous, you know. And it was, like, over there. And so I went to the surface. And he came back. And he goes, what's wrong? And I said, the jellyfish, you know. I don't want to be stung by it. So what he did is he immediately went, got the jellyfish, pushed it all the way, the corner where the fence was and came back to get me. Okay, folks, so by that time, I was absolutely in love. I was like, okay. (laughs) I'm yours. I mean, seriously, it was so much fun. So, unfortunately, time was out. You know, half hour was up. So, went back, slept in my cat, showed up the next morning, went back to um, Fonzie, Fonzie's group, and um, went Back there, and uh, just continued to have a beautiful, beautiful time of communicating with them and practicing. Very magical. So um, I want to get to some other stories, but that was my dolphin experience. So um, that was so much fun. So if you ever get a chance to swim with dolphins, and if they're well taken care of and um, they don't mind their one of the most brilliant species on the planet. They were here way before humans came. And they were here to hold the frequencies and balance Earth. A lot of the whale songs do that. By the way, there's a website called speakdolphin.com. It has amazing pictures, videos, and dolphin songs, as well as a book. And um, Jack has a wit. Uh, runs that and he's a lifelong kind of perfectionist with musical skills which led him to the first breakthrough in dolphin research the discovery of complex musical form within dolphin vocalizations so although the songs within these dolphin vocalizations are too complex for the human ear in their original form jack used graduate level musical students because he was a musician himself from the University of Miami to perform the dolphin songs on human instruments, such as guitar and piano. And this allows humans to appreciate the beauty and sophistication of the dolphin and also whale-composed music. Now, I told in one of my many shows about Kymatics, which proves that sound creates form. And uh, they now have an invented chymoscope, C-Y-M-A scope, which they use, which is a new instrument that reveals the detailed structures within sounds, allowing the dolphins architecture, meaning they see in those sounds what they're sending, the pictures they're sending in those sounds to be studied pictorially. And using high-definition audio recordings of dolphins and whales, they have been able to see the beautiful images that arise from that sound. You must go to that website and also check out Kymatics.com, C-Y-M-A-T-I-C-S, okay, because you're going to see the beautiful images and including human forms and what they see in those sounds. It is just so cool. And I don't know if you guys know this, but sound travels much faster in water than in air, probably four times faster, something like this. So check that out, too. Uh, Carl Sagan, uh, who most, those of you that are my age knew him as a famous scientist on the TV, and he, he has a great quote I've always loved, which is, quote, it is of interest to note that while some dolphins are reported to have learned English up to 50 words so far... And they use it in a correct context. No human being has been reported to have learned dolphin quote. So uh, I just appreciated that humble thing. So what I want to get to uh, is also um, what about communicating with one's most, you know, the, the animals that most people consider pests. Uh, and you know how that is. We just try to kill them or squish them because they're a nuisance. So, what are two of the most common, quote, pests that humans feel infiltrate their house and garden? So, I chose store uh, animal communication stories, successful stories on with gophers that tear up the garden or lawn, and with ants and infestation infest your house. So, I hope this puts a new light on even the animals that uh, one may consider not smart, not knowing anything, small, dumb, et cetera. So um, to do this, my memory brought me back to 1954 to the endearing book that I read called Kinship with All Life by J. Allen Boone, who was a direct descendant of Daniel Boone, the famous explorer and woodsman. And Boone worked hard, very hard, and very humbly, he's super intelligent and diligent to learn how to communicate with all living creatures with no, not having any teacher, uh, with no judgment. And back in that time, you know, they, they used the term beast, beast for all, you know, beast of burden for most, most animals. So he developed the skill to quiet his mind and just move into a sacred communion. And so I will be sharing his direct stories of two of the experiences that can be found in his book, The Language of Silence, published in 1970. And I dedicate this next story to my friend Lorna, who may or may not be listening, who loves all animals and has a huge magical garden, but still gives gophers digging up things in her. So, quote. Oh. Despite gophers having a low rating with humans, they are exceptionally wise and impressive little rodents. Life for the gopher has never been a bed of roses. Almost everywhere that he goes or she goes, humans are eager to trap, poison, or otherwise destroy them. And if a human doesn't kill them, a hawk, coyote, snake, or fox is happy to do so. Out of necessity, the gopher has to have the gopher itness. I threw that one in, (laughs) pun intended, and operate with unusual ability and agility. With his powerful foreclaws for underground tunneling and his sharp incisory teeth, he is a very hard worker and uh, snaps off flowers, vegetables, and young trees. When it comes to wrecking gardens, the gopher is in a class of his own. An owner of the garden is apt to explode into undiluted savagery, and to whatever it takes, do whatever it takes, kill them. But usually after the killings, other gophers eventually move back into the empty tunnels and take the place of the ones that were destroyed. And so it goes on and on with neither side seeming to win a lasting victory or truce. This is where animal communication or communion takes place. Boone, who lived in Los Angeles, continues quote, it is rarely recognized that the individual human thinking always plays an important part in human gopher contact. Three memorable episodes prove this to me. The first had to do with a wealthy, prominent woman in Southern California, who for many years has bristled with the firm conviction that when she she thinks and says about anything is the final word on the subject, and that anyone who disagrees with her is definitely deficient in intelligence. So as she was strolling through her abundant formal garden one afternoon, she discovered a gopher at work on one of her favorite rare plantings. Furiously angry, she began throwing everything she could find at the little fellow. The latter ducked each flung object with perfect timing and rhythmical ease, then disappeared down his hole. Hurrying to her house, the woman quickly retrieved a jar of guaranteed instant death, rodent poison. She dumped the entire thing down the gopher hole with all the murderous hatred that she could send along with it. Early the next morning, the woman hurried out to her garden to ensure that the poison had killed this creature. Putting on her elaborately designed gold-rimmed glasses, she lowered her face to the entrance of the hole to take a look. Almost instantly, there was a horrified scream and the woman fell over on her side, her face covered in blood. The gopher had indeed bitten her nose with his long, sharp teeth. The bite was serious. She had to be rushed to an emergency hospital. As the ambulance took her away, the gopher calmly emerged from his hole and resumed work on the rare plantings in the garden. Through some personal special detective work on my part, I unraveled the facts. Being a wise little fellow, the gopher had refused to have anything to do with a poison dumped down his hole. He intuitively heard his would-be killer heading his direction and felt her intentions moving towards his hole. As part of his strategy and the conflict of interest, the gopher alerted himself for action just inside the entrance to the hole. When the woman's face came close enough, he let her have it. So the second episode had to do with another approach with another prominent woman in Southern California, whose beautiful home had a flower garden and a particularly fine vegetable garden. While she was inspecting her garden one morning, she found that a gopher had dug its future home right under a trellis of special cucumber vines. And unfortunately had done a considerable amount of damage to the vines. Instead of going into some form of outer instruction to her uninvited guests, she went into inner action. Okay, this is the teaching. She became as calm and introspective as possible. Then she checked to the extent that she had been living up to her cosmic obligation of always trying to identify the greater wisdom and good in every living thing. In this case, even a vine-eating gopher. She had enough inner spiritual wisdom to know that this gopher problem needed to be solved inwardly rather than outwardly because the entire phenomenon was taking place inside her own thinking and nowhere else. It was happening exclusively within the boundaries of her own state of consciousness, and consequently, this situation had to be worked out subjectively, owing to the fact that the objective interpretation, whatever its seeming appearance and actions, is always within the subjective observer's own thoughts and prejudices, I may add. So I'm interjecting here to say that this was written in 1954 and quantum physics has only just now proven that it is indeed how reality appears to work based on the results of their experiment and something called the observer effect. So back to the story. As a woman with alerted intuitive listening and hearing continued subjectively exploring her thoughts, a fact with tremendous meaning and scope began gently unfolding in her awareness. She realized that the cucumber vines, the gopher, and everything else that she could identify were innately all the same eternal energetic substance, all reflections of the same infinite source of life, all expressions of the same infinite mind and heart. They, therefore, were all equally important in the unfolding perfection of divine plan and purpose. She further realized that the individual gopher ruling her vines, ruining her vines, was not the real cause for her disturbing situation. The fault was entirely her own. She had for a while been concerned and doing negative thinking about gophers, including having options on how to get rid of them if they took up residence in her garden. We've all been there, right? She had been flinging, as is is often human nature, negative thought forms at all gophers, whenever they came to mind, and thought forms have a way of manifesting in one's reality by boomeranging back again, and that she became aware of that in her own knowing. She owned that she had projected this mental picture into her reality by her own negative thinking and feeling, and was confident that she could create a new outcome together. At this point, the woman reminded herself of the golden rule. She remembered that as she bettered her own mind pictures of the gopher in the garden, the so-called outer results had to correspond as they were aspects of one and the same thing. Even though the woman and the gopher could not see one another at the time, a balance and harmonization began to occur between these two seemingly unrelatable forms of life. Of course, throughout the field of all that is. when one heartbeat is in tune with the universal heartbeat everything one meets will want to cooperate and be friends the proof of this is after she had this revelation our revelation i like revelation <laughs> and sent loving cooperative thoughts of unification to the gopher along with respect the gopher completely stopped destroying the cucumber vines gave up his newly dug home under them and moved off her land gophers never again came into her gardens This illustrates how effective such qualities as intelligence, respect, and understanding can really function between any form and life. Third episode, a gentleman who was skeptical that changing one's thoughts towards animals could help at all, let alone the gopher, could be managed, then the gopher uh, communication could be managed by communion and cooperation together, yet managed to sincerely accept the challenge and with a sense of childlike adventure, curiosity, and faith, ended up writing a private letter to the gophers in his garden. And then he pushed down the letter that had the intent and the energy into the gopher holes, the gopher hole that evening. The next morning, he walked out to the garden. He stayed in childlike wonder, and he could not find any fresh tracks or holes made from any gopher. He continued searching daily for several weeks but not the least evidence of gophers could be found below or above ground. He then understood for real that the gophers had somehow understood his sincere gentlemanly appeal to them and reacted accordingly, like the respectful creatures that they really are. So what about ants, you may ask? You know, I am guilty of that. I occasionally get impatient and just squish them rather than deal with them in a much mature fashion. Boone wrote a beautiful story called Ant Code. And uh, so uh, I'll share that right now. Quote, for the first time in many years where I lived in Southern California, my little house had been taken over by members of the formicordia family, commonly known as ants. I'd accidentally left the door of the old-fashioned icebox open, and I had been out of ice. Remember, this was written back, uh, you know, many years. Milling all over the food on the inside were more ants than I had ever seen, being a keen observer of nature and its kin. They were all over the walls, floors, and ceilings of both my porch and my kitchen. Under the back door came line upon line of reinforcements headed for the new food find. My dinner was ruined, and I resented these ants in a most primitive way. Hurrying over to my nearest neighbor, I borrowed a can of ant poison, temporarily forgetting my resolution and commitment to treat all forms of life with respect, kindness, and consideration. Returning with a can of poison in one hand and a broom in the other, I was ready to massacre. I was resentful. Excuse me. Just going to grab some water. I was resentful that these little bandits could think they could come into my house and get away with it. I was just about ready to engage when my New England conscience started to hiss. It wanted to know why, with all that I had been privileged to successfully experience in animal communication and relationship balancing with both animals and people, I should want to kill these ants. Being in a combustible mood, I took a deep breath and began to reason with myself. Finally, I decided to not go through it and to confer with my unwelcome guests like the animals and the dog I work with, Strongheart had previously taught me. But how to confer in a practical way with an army of ants? I had no idea. Sitting on the floor to better observe the situation, I tried to find the lead ant or the committee of ants in charge of food retrieval. I looked through a huge magnifying glass. No one ant or group appeared to be any more important than any other ant. Each ant was equally doing its part in the general effort without the need for instructions or supervision. Hmm. So I set up the invisible bridge I had been practicing and doing successfully and quieted myself preparing for a two-way thought transference, but I had only done it with a single animal at a time. How does one communicate with hundreds of ants all over the house was befuddling. So logically, I decided the only way it could be done is to turn myself into a broadcast station and talk to all the ants at the same time. This I proceeded to do. Listen, ants, we seem to be living in a topsy-turvy world. At the moment, I'm not entirely sure whether you or I really belong in this house. But one point I am very clear is your ones have ruined a perfectly good dinner for me. I had to go to considerable effort and expense all alone, too, in order to get that food for my dinner tonight. I have to eat to live just as much as you fellows do. Then without any kind of may we have some food, you came sneaking in here and took my dinner away from me. That is neither right nor fair from any angle of approach, especially in these difficult days when we are all out trying to help one another. I paused after sending that. I paused and observed. The broadcast did not seem to be having any lasting effect on them. More ants were piling into the walls, of the ceiling, and more appeared to be working on the food. It was discouraging, but nevertheless, I kept on. You ants may not be aware of it, but I'm in a position to wipe most of you out of existence within the next few minutes with this poison and broom. But that does not seem to be the right answer. We humans have been killing one another off in matters of this kind for centuries, and we are worse off today than we were when we started. Then, remembering how everything likes to be appreciated, and my most successful animal communications were when I understood and appreciated the animal I was speaking with. I began sending all the complimentary things I could think of in their direction. I told them how much I admired their keen intelligence, their zest for living, their complete dedication to whatever they happened to be doing at the moment. Their harmonious action and a common purpose, their ability to work together without misunderstandings, or the need to be constantly told what to do. After sending that with the greatest respect, I paused to take another look under my magnifying glass. The situation seemed to be worse than ever, so with a sigh, I decided to end the broadcast and say, that's all I have to say to you, aunts. I have honestly done my best in this situation. The rest is up to you fellows. I am speaking to you as a gentleman, knowing you are intelligent, respecting, and kind." Then he said he went into the living room, sat down in the chair, and felt very dejected. I started thinking I was actually insane to be talking to ants. So I decided I needed a change of scenery. I left the house, and I took myself to a comedy theater in the neighborhood to try to forget the entire experience. <clears throat> Returning home, shortly after midnight, I went on to the back porch to see what was happening. There was not an ant in sight, not one. The icebox was still open. I ran up the stairs with inviting, the food was still there, and there were some crumbs and food still on the table, but not an ant in sight. I inspected every inch with a flashlight, the walls, the ceilings, and couldn't find even one straggler. The little fellows had actually kept their part in our gentleman's agreement. This happened years ago, and I've never been bothered since by any ants in any manner at home or abroad. Occasionally, one scout ant passes by through the room on his way from one outdoors to the other and passes just long enough for us to send each other a friendly, polite greeting. So there are countless of hundreds of ants moving about the ground where I lived and plenty of entrances into the house. There is usually food sitting in the kitchen and on the back porch that ants like. While they invade the homes of my neighbors and annoy them excessively, they never gang up on me anymore. Our respectful agreement holds true to this day, not only with the ants that had invaded my home, but with all other ants as well. It's like holding an invisible honorary membership card in the ants' union. And that's from J. Allen Boone. I've had the same experience with ants when I lived with one of the most gentle, wonderful men in my life named Anton. To keep it short, a whole team of ants had infiltrated my kitchen counters through my uh, that was close to my back door. And when I returned from work, I was really tired, and I looked at that, and I mean, there were hundreds, and I was dismayed. And I remembered what I had read, though, in this story years before that I just shared with you. So I did my best to send them messages of love and ask that they kindly leave the indoor part of my house. I told them that I understood they need food as well to survive. So I will be fair and leave you a large dish of honey. If you like that, you can take that back to your hive. I am appreciative of you as a species, what you do, but I cannot have you inside my house. So I'm putting honey on the back porch right now for you on the bottom stair. So I just, You know, went by faith and curiosity and openness, and I went to bed because I was tired. In the morning, I went to the kitchen, curious to know if anything had changed, and the most remarkable love letter was waiting for me on the kitchen counter. Every one of those ants had left, except for 20 of them that were forming a moving heart shape on the top of the counter for me to see. I looked at it, and tears welled up in my eyes as I responded, I love you too. You are so selfless and diligent in what you do to serve. And with that appreciation, they split from the heart-shaped formation and proceeded in a line to march off the counter, across the floor, and out the back door. So that's my advice for pets. Now... um, I, will t- I think I have time for one more story by Jay Allen Boo called Strongheart. Strongheart was a very, very, very famous uh, war hero, <laughs> uh, wartime dog, and movie star in Hollywood. And he came back from wartime as a very <sighs> triumphant, aggressive, 125-pound German shepherd. And he was given to a man, a man named Larry Trimble, who's the person who adopted him. And Larry Trimble was indeed very wise. Very, very wise. Uh, So he said, the German shepherd named Strongheart, it's important to understand the distinction between training an animal and educating one. I believe our educational system has much the same lesson to learn with children and young adults. People send their animals to trainers to be well-behaved. In military at that time, a minimum of intelligence and maximum of force was employed in order to encourage encourage blind obedience, the make em or break technique. This breaks down all spontaneity of the soul and initiative. And in strong heart, they dull down their free will, uh, the animals, you know, in his case, would dull down their free will and, you know, joy of life, just a baby owner. Uh, so, he, you know, this man, Larry Trimble, became a correct steward and he, a uh, strong heart, to an open farm and just studied him and allowed him complete freedom and noticed and focused on his strengths and who he really was. And strong-hearts thinking and natural impulses were, you know, walled off before and kind of becoming a four-legged slave. And he wanted to see that without the authority figures and with bringing the best of himself forward, how he would flourish. And indeed, he did. Uh... An animal educator does just the reverse of a trainer. Moving into a situation with the insight and intuition, she or he places full emphasis on the mental and intuitive natural wisdom of the animal rather than just the physical capacity. She or he treats the animal as an intelligent fellow being whose capacity for development and expression she or he refuses to limit in any direction, just like a healthy parent should She or he knows that the appearance, actions, and accomplishments are just an outward expression of its state of mind. The animal communicator seeks to assist the animal to make use of its thinking and reasoning faculties so so that there will be corresponding results in the look, character, and actions. Initially returning from war, Strongheart was aggressive, set in his ways, and opposed to changing his thinking and behavior patterns, a type of rigidity that worked in wartime, but was a liability socially. With Larry Trimble's caretaking and love, this ever ready to explode mixture of superiority, dislike, indifference, and annoyance that this dog had, and completely suspicious and watchful of everyone, was shifted into the best of his talents and graces that were buried beneath the dog's tough physical exterior and never allowed to develop. They needed to be liberated. They did not need to be developed. Trimble began opening up all sorts of ways for strong hearts and prison splendor to escape into expression. Starting off meager at first, it moved into spontaneous abundance. This big war dog was helped to know, to be, and to share his true real self, not the conditioned one. And it was this unrestricted sharing of his real self which enabled Strongheart to accomplish the most incredible things he did and to to achieve his unsurpassed rating in the world of entertainment to the point where it was evident he could read everyone's mind, knew what they were thinking, knew if they were pure of heart, and would act accordingly. Again, what opened the dog up to his true self is what opens us humans up to be our true selves. Someone seeing who we truly are And giving us enough space and freedom to allow that to come forward, controlling rigidity, respecting, trusting, and encouraging while working in communion. That's how we need to be working with all of life, its creatures. So with that, uh, I could share more, but that will be for a later time. As Shakespeare said, we were all made of the same stuff eternity is made of. So on this day of thankfulness, may our hearts, may our heart beats echo back and forth with one another and all living beings, respectful of our differences, focused on our own and others' commonality together, generating a harmony and rhythm that pervades all living beings and sustains the kinship and oneness of all life, wherein all is well always, no matter how it may appear. I am thankful for all of you that have curious hearts and childlike passion to share with me and the joys and wonders Ah, that are here for us to discover and share together with these wise four-legged brothers and sisters and all the other creatures on this planet together. Blessings to you all.